If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 3 to 6. We're going to be taking uh, another week off from our sermon series in the Gospel of John. We'll be looking at the book of Philippians. Uh, on the church calendar, uh, there is a Sunday after Easter uh, called Intern Sunday. Uh, so you get to hear me preach uh, so we can give our pastor a break. Uh, so that's why I'm here this morning. Uh, so again, Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the great grace that you have worked in our hearts. You have raised us from the dead and you have given us spiritual life. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would again speak to us, that you would take your word and bring it into our hearts in such a way that we would leave here rejoicing at the life that you have given us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. One of the hardest things to do in the life of a church is to say goodbye when individuals leave a particular body. This is the case not only for hard reasons, but it is also the case for good reasons. Goodbyes are hard. They can be an awkward thing both for the person leaving and for the people who are staying. I don't claim to be an expert, and I'm most certainly in danger of overgeneralizing here, uh, but I am under the conviction that churches don't normally do goodbyes well, and I think it's partly because of our culture is so bad at goodbyes. Again, goodbyes tend to be hard. They tend to be awkward and maybe a bit clumsy, so the easiest thing to do is just quietly ignore it like nothing ever happened, uh, to possibly sneak out as a means to protect ourselves. And I want to suggest this morning that when a church treats goods, goodbyes in, in this way, they miss out on a unique joy that belongs to all churches that are committed to the spreading of the gospel. In other words, gospel people will unfortunately say goodbye to one another at times because of their commitment to seeing the gospel spread. A little over three years ago, the elders of this church had the sincere desire for this church to be a church that is committed to raising up leaders and ministers for the ministry of word and sacraments. See, this church through its elders had the conviction that in our day there is a gospel, a famine of gospel preaching. In, other, in order to see that change, they committed to the, the training and sending out of Christ-centered 
spirit-dependent, prayerful, and ordinary gospel-preaching ministers. And three years ago, I came to this congregation for the purpose of being trained and encouraged to do those exact things. And what a journey it's been. It's been one marked by personal suffering, joy, a global pandemic, learning my own growth in the Lord. I've heard so many of your individual stories. Some of us have cried together. Some of us have stood at the open mouth graves of, of loved ones together. We've broken bread together in each other's homes. You've prayed for me. I've prayed for you. I've visited you in the hospital. You have visited my family in the hospital. We have rejoiced and mourned together. And here we are today, and this is my last sermon, at least as a member of this dear congregation. A little under a month, my family and I will be load up and head to Detroit, Michigan, because we feel as best we can discern that the Lord is calling us there in this next season of gospel ministry. And in this sermon introduction, I want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you, that I love you, and I praise the Lord Jesus Christ for each one of you, that the Lord has done extraordinary things in this body in the last three years. In my study this week, I came across a quote by one of my theological heroes, a man by the name of Lemuel Haynes. Uh, in his final sermon in 1818, he said to his congregation, I did not realize my attachment to you before the parting time came. And friends, I feel that exact same way towards you this week. As many of you know, I'm not the most emotional or at least outwardly emotional person, but I found myself writing this sermon and crying tears of joy. and just so thankful for the Lord, what the Lord has done. And I thought of no better place to spend our time together this morning than uh, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi in the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul planted this church and now he is sitting in in prison some years later writing to this beloved congregation. You see, Paul and this church had a special relationship. It was one that was marked by mutual joy and love and affection. It was marked by a relationship that was marked by, by care. And as you read the letter, you can feel Paul's heart pulsating uh, as he, with affection for these dear saints. In chapter 1, verse 7, he says that he holds them in his heart and then in verse 8, he says that he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. In a real sense, Paul is demonstrating for us how Christians should feel about one another, particularly those who are members of the same local body. There is a unique love, care, joy, and affection that is to be experienced by those who sit in the same pews and make covenantal vows to one another. We don't talk that way in churches much these days, and I often wonder why. Beloved, it is a Christian impulse to have a love and affection for the saints of God. With the Spirit's help, we should be able to say what the psalmist says in Psalm uh, 16, verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom all, my, who, in whom all is my delight. What I want for us this morning is to see that Paul's thankfulness to God for this congregation is a result of their partnership together in the gospel. 
Paul's thankfulness to God for this specific congregation is a result of their partnership together in the gospel. And friends, I want to say the same thing to you this morning, that I am thankful to God for you because of our partnership together in the gospel. And in a real sense, I want us to experience and feel the same joys that come from being partners in the gospel. And I want us to see and experience this by looking at our text under two headings. I want us to consider the thankfulness of Paul in verses 3 to 5, and then the confidence of Paul in verse 6. The thankfulness of Paul and the confidence of Paul. First, the thankfulness of Paul. The Apostle Paul begins his correspondence to this church by giving thanks to God. He says, if you look at it at verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Paul opening his letter in this way should strike us as being significant because Paul is writing these words while in prison. Paul had just been thrown in jail for preaching the gospel, and this time Paul is unsure if he will either be freed or if he will end up dying in prison. In his mind, both of these possibilities are on the table. In other words, Paul is writing these words in less than ideal circumstances. You see, Paul could have opened this letter with a list of complaints or with a a plea for the Philippian church to do whatever they can to find a way for him to be released. But instead of doing those things, Paul finds himself with reasons to be thankful to God. See, friends, Paul is modeling for us a posture of thanksgiving that should be instructive for each of us. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is one of the doctrinal standards of our church, asks the question, what is prayer? It answers it in this way, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins in thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. The Apostle Paul at the onset of this letter is giving thankful acknowledgement to the mercies of God. Beloved, how often do the words thank you spill out of our mouths. If you're like me, the words thank thank you roll off our tongues without any second thought, whether in the grocery store or at the doctor's office or when someone lets us merge into their lane, we are quick to say thank you because it is the right thing to do. We've been taught to acknowledge the kindness and generosity of others in an almost instinctive way, which is a good thing, but the tragic reality is that we're often quick to give thanks to others and yet slow to give thanks to God. You see, we have emphasized being thankful as a means of being polite and have forgotten that first and foremost, thankfulness is the proper posture for the Christian because all things come from the hand of God. Listen to James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. It comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. Paul is able from a Roman prison cell, he is able to give thanks to God because he realizes every good thing comes from the hand of a good God. Paul tells his readers that he is thankful specifically for them. The phrase in all my remembrance of you is Paul saying that every time I, every time I think of you, Every time a memory of you floods my mind, every time my mind wanders to you, I give thanks to God for you. 
Beloved, Paul is thankful for this church. This church loved Paul. Paul saw the grace of God at work in this particular local body, so he rightly gives God praise for what he sees. See, Paul had this impulse, this ability to always see glimpses of God's grace in the life of his people. And the prayers that we read from Paul in the New Testament, particularly his opening prayers, we see that Paul always thanked God for the evidence of spiritual blessings among Christians. He was indeed sensitive to the the problems that were in these churches, but he was even more sensitive to the mercy of God at work. Friends, I know that many of you have various experiences in churches, some good and some not so good, but I want to encourage you that this church, by God's grace, is a good church. It's not a perfect church, especially seeing that I'm a member in this congregation. But it is a good church, and hear me, it's okay. Better yet, it is necessary to be thankful to God for being able to be a member at a church that is healthy. I find myself often shocked when I read through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, The church in Corinth was, how can I put it, uh, it was quite frankly a, a ratchet church. It was, a, it was a church that was a, that was a mess. They, there was public, public sexual infidelity, disunity, bad doctrine, divisiveness, politics, and the list could go on and on. But Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, with a clear conscience, that he, give, he gives thanks to his God always for them because of the grace of God that was given to them in Christ Jesus. You see, even in the, what seems to be the most unhealthy of churches in the New Testament, Paul found reason to give thanks to God. Why? Because God is always at work in the life of his people. And Paul, like any good pastor, any good Christian, is able to see that and acknowledge that. Beloved, I want to encourage you this morning that you may not see it, but God is very much at work in the life of this church. There are individuals in this congregation who are more mature in Christ now than they were a year ago. Sin has been exposed and the the healing balm of the gospel has been applied. God is raising up new leaders and officers in this congregation. Homes that were were tension-filled are now more peaceful and, and beating with gospel life and love. New members have joined our congregation. Individuals are taking initiative in serving one another without having to be acknowledged. Covenant children are coming to the Lord's table and feasting with the rest of the people of God. More children are being born, and some of you are suffering so faithfully in walking with the Lord your God in extremely difficult circumstances. So many churches have been torn apart by partisan politics and in the pandemic, and yet this congregation, as far as I know, did not experience that. Friends, all of these blessings have come to us by God through Christ. Let us learn to see and celebrate these graces that the Lord has sought to give us. Notice in verse 4 that Paul's thanksgiving and prayer for these brothers and sisters is marked by joy. He says in verse 4, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Paul is saying that when he remembers them, that when he praises God for them, he, he prays for them, and those prayers are marked by joy. They are, pray, they are joyful prayers. These prayers that Paul offers up 
on behalf of the Philippians to God have joy piercing through them. For Paul, it was a delight to pray for these brothers and sisters in this Roman prison cell. As he prayed for these brothers and sisters in the Lord, Paul found reason to be joyful. Joy is one of the major themes in this book. Paul is going to beat this drum again and again and again. 16 times in this letter, Paul will speak of being joyful. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17 through 18, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, rejoice, have joy in the Lord. Later in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul is modeling in verse 4 what he is commanding this church to do throughout this letter. What he is commanding them to do is to be joyful in the midst of suffering. He wants them to experience he wants them to understand that this is the, the Christian life, suffering and joy. I don't know how often he has said this to me, uh, but Pastor Quinn, throughout my time at Grace, has always emphasized that suffering and glory in the Christian life are often married together. In other words, you can't have one without the other. And I think the Apostle Paul would affirm that. That he would amen that statement, and he wants this posture to be cultivated in the life of this dear congregation. It was Paul himself who, in 2 Corinthians, said that he was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Joy animated from Paul's life, and he wanted these brothers and sisters to experience this same reality as well. Friends, I am convinced that there is few, if any, greater apologetic, greatest, greater witness to the power of the gospel and the unique nature of the Christian faith than an individual, or better yet, a congregation that has learned how to be joyful in the midst of suffering. I'm not talking about gritting your teeth and white-knuckling your way through it. That's not joy. I'm talking about the joy, the, the, the gladness of heart, the, the, the beautiful glow of delight that exudes from someone who knows that they are suffering with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is what gripped Paul. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, that his desire is that he may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. When we suffer, we share in the very sufferings of Jesus. There is a unique knowledge or experience of Christ that comes when we suffer with Christ. The path of humiliation that Jesus walked is the, the path that Christ has called us to walk as well. Beloved, let me encourage you from Paul's example. Suffer well. Suffer well. Suffer faithfully. By God's grace and empowered by his spirit, suffer well. Yes, cry and mourn and pray to God for relief, but don't let joy come only after the suffering has ended. But learn how to walk in the midst of suffering because the Lord is with you in those moments. The question that this brings us to is what makes Paul so thankful and joyful for these Christians? Well, he gives us the specific reason in verse 5. He says, 
that it is because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The thing that Paul is thankful for, that Paul is joyful for, what brings him joy is their mutual partnership in the gospel. The word partnership in the Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, is a familiar word. There are a few Greek words that are so often used in Bible-believing churches that we kind of know what they mean, even if we've never studied the language. Agape, the Greek word for love, would be one of them. The Greek word that is used here for partnership is one of those familiar words, and it's the word koinonia. And when you hear that word, or when we hear that word, we typically think of a fellowship, and that's exactly what Paul is saying. Paul is thankful for their partnership, for their fellowship in the gospel. The word fellowship, particularly in the church, has been, I would argue, so watered down that we often don't really understand the significance of it. We use the word fellowship in a very different way than the New Testament uses the word fellowship. Our view of fellowship is basically when Christians socialize and have food. In other words, Christians plus food plus socialization equals fellowship. But Paul has something more wonderful and glorious in view. Fellowship in the Bible, according to D.A. Carson, is a self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. He's saying that fellowship is a commitment to something when you sacrifice yourself to a shared vision. He goes on and says Christian fellowship then is self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel which produces overtones of warmth and intimacy. You see, fellowship consists of bringing people together who may not ever be together if it wasn't for the reality that they were brought together by something that transcended them all. You need something where all parties have a mutual investment. You see, biblically speaking, in order to have fellowship, you need to have something that is big enough to bring and hold people together. We don't know much about the church in Philippi, but what we do know is that it was a largely Gentile church. According to Acts 16, it consisted of a jailer who was a violent man who would have killed himself in a moment of crisis if the Apostle Paul hadn't have stepped in. There was also this, a girl who was trapped in slavery who was once possessed by an evil spirit. There was also this wealthy businesswoman named Lydia who was converted under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And then you have the Apostle Paul himself, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a, a, a Benjaminite. The question is, is what brought these very different individuals together who really have nothing in common, but caused them to be those who sat in the same pews together and who were willing to suffer for one another? How can Paul look at this group who is so different than him and say to them, these are my people? This all takes place, beloved, because they have fellowship in the gospel. These people are united not around their shared politics. They weren't united around the reality of being in the same tax bracket. They weren't united around educating their kids in the same way. They weren't united around having the same race or ethnicity. There was little to bind them together, at least in regards to worldly standards. 
Their partnership went deeper than that. Their partnership was in something that transcended all of them. Their partnership, their fellowship, their communion with one another was found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They shared in a common confession surrounding the message of Jesus. They believed that Jesus was really the, 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 the eternal son of God who became man. That he lived a perfect life, that he took upon himself God's wrath against sin, that he died a sacrificial death and was raised from the dead on the third day. That he has ascended into heaven and that he will come back to judge the living and the dead and take his people home. Beloved, this is what united them together. They mutually shared and having the same story that God raised spiritually dead people to life. Beloved, this is what unites us together as well. And my word doesn't our world need to hear that, especially in this moment. I'm often struck by the reality, especially when I stand up here, that I can look into a crowd of people who look very different than me, and I can say that these are my people. The gospel radically changes who we think our people are. It's crazy to think about that I, as a a black man from Sunset Acres here in Shreveport, Louisiana, who loves hip-hop, has fundamentally more in common than the white stay-at-home mom in this congregation who loves country music. And that I could go back to my neighborhood and see people who I've known for years and we have nothing in common anymore. Beloved, we are united together in the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's too many Christians in here for that not to get an amen. We are united in the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The unity amidst diversity that our world is craving and hungry for and it's seeking to manufacture in superficial ways is imploding on itself. Racial tensions are higher than I've seen in my lifetime. And I think the church, all churches, have a wonderful opportunity to demonstrate tangibly what this world can only produce superficially. Paul is thankful for their mutual fellowship in the gospel. But it's worth pointing out that Paul is not just mentioning and rejoicing in their common identity that they share because of the gospel, but he is also rejoicing in the reality that they shared a commitment to wanting to see the gospel go forward to the ends of the earth. Paul's heartbeat was the advancement of the gospel and that pierces through this letter. Listen to the report that he gives to them in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul's chief end was to see the gospel advance to the ends of the earth. Paul and this congregation were partners in the gospel, which was demonstrated in their commitment to seeing the gospel advance. 
They partnered with Paul financially because they were invested in the mission of God through their prayers and support and and tangible uh, relief for the apostle. They were demonstrating that they wanted the same thing as the apostle Paul. They wanted other congregations and other churches planted so that people would come to know Jesus. Beloved, this is why we train up pastors. This is why we send out missionaries. This is why we support ministries like RUF and church plants, and the list could go on and on. We want to see the Lord Jesus Christ lifted up in all places for all people to see. Friends, this is the thankfulness of Paul. But Paul's not only thankful for this church at Philippi, he is also confident about this church's future. That brings us to our second point, and this will be briefer, uh, the confidence of Paul. The confidence of Paul. Paul is not just thankful for this church's past. He is also thankful and confident in their future. He says in verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is one of the most precious verses in all of the Bible. This good work that Paul mentions is the work of salvation. As Paul thinks of his beloved brothers and sisters and remembers their conversions, of how they were once dead and then raised to the newness of life, how they were once lost without God, but now they have been found, how he remembers how they responded to the message of Jesus. And Paul understands that this act of salvation is nothing less than the work of Almighty God. Beloved, our salvation is the work of God. It is not something that we have done, but something that God has accomplished all by himself. It is to say that the the source of our salvation does not come from us, but it comes from outside of us. What does it mean that God is going to bring this work to completion? It means that God is going to bring all of his children safely home. He is going to preserve them to the end. God, by his own might, is going to ensure that each of his beloved children make it home to glory. What a wonderful encouragement that is. Paul says that God is going to finish the work that he has started. You see, you and I often do not finish the things that we start. We begin projects and other things like that, and then we have a tendency to not see them through to the end once things get too difficult or become too costly. We walk alongside of people, but at some point, it becomes too much for us. But Paul says that this is not the case with our God. He finishes what he begins. According to one scholar, God is not like men so as to be wearied out or exhausted by conferring kindness to us. What that writer is saying is that God does not get exhausted or weary by coming alongside of you, but instead he is going to walk with you all the way home. The grounds for Paul's confidence for this church is found in the fact that he is confident in God's ability to see this work through the end. Christian life is hard, isn't it? Sometimes we're not sure if we are going to be able to keep going. Sometimes the finish line seems so far away and we feel like we are going to stop short of that finish line. Beloved, know that God is going to finish what he began in you. He is going to, he doesn't start a construction project without the resources to finish it. 
Your confidence in enduring to the end cannot be found in your own strength or determination and effort. can only be found in the God who has sworn by his own name that he will see you to the end. Paul is thankful for these dear saints and he is confident that God is going to keep them to the end. And friends, I feel the same exact way about each of you. Goodbyes are difficult, like I said earlier. They're still awkward. They probably will always be awkward and hard. But they can also be uniquely sweet, especially when we have reason to be thankful to God for one another and confident that God is going to finish the work that he began in each one of our lives. Friends, I count it as a great joy to be a partner together with you in the glorious message of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the reality that you have brought us into the family of God and you have united us together through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that we can be confident of each other's futures because our confidence does not rely in us, but in you who will safely bring us home. We ask that you would encourage our hearts and give us the eyes of faith. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.